This is the uh, fourth sermon, The Temptation of Christ, Part 4. But we're on the third temptation, because the first sermon was introductory considerations. This is the, the third temptation, and uh, you'll find this extremely interesting. This is the uh, kind of the climax, where the devil wants Christ to worship him. <clears throat> but I'm going to read the whole section, which is 1 through uh, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these, that these stones be made, become bread. <clears throat> but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Thus endeth the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> with the first two temptations being an abysmal failure, the devil drops the subtle deceitful approach, and makes a bold, direct appeal for immediate dominion if Jesus accepts Satanism. Devil worship, or the satanic world and life view. Satan drops his mask of friendliness and his tactic of apparent concern for Christ's welfare and appears as the prince and ruler of the world. The devil believes that due to his high position, he deserves to be worshipped. And he has the authority to give Jesus all the kingdoms of this world. And we're going to look at this in detail. Satan acts as though he is God himself. He no longer focuses on the Savior's sonship or on deceiving Christ to doubt the Father's promises or act contrary to God's will. Instead, he boldly asked Jesus to adopt the satanic plan of worldly dominion. He wants the Messiah to change his allegiance from Yahweh to himself. And this is a very interesting section of Scripture that has a lot to teach us about the difference between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan. And there are a number of aspects to consider. First, the setting. First, like the previous temptation, this one involves a new setting and another transportation. In this instance, Jesus is taken to a very high mountain. <clears throat> and it's unspecified. We have no idea. There's no reason to speculate what it is. There's no point in speculating on what mountain this could be, for no matter how tall the mountain would be, even Mount Everest, 
no one could literally see every kingdom in the world from one mountain. Consequently, one must either view the phrase all the kingdoms in this world as a hyperbolic expression, meaning some kingdoms of this world or many kingdoms of this world, many magnificent kingdoms of this world, or one could argue that our Lord was enabled somehow in a vision to view all the kingdoms of this world. Calvin believes that uh, all the kingdoms of the world were presented to Jesus in a vision, and I think this is the best interpretation. In this test, God allowed the devil to set before the Savior a vision or special sight of all the worldly kingdoms and their glory. The glory of the Aztecs and the Mayas, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Romans, the Greeks, etc. The inspired text does not go into the details of precisely how this occurred. However, we can rest assured that the temptation itself was a real, literal temptation. Now, whether or not Satan had the authority to give Jesus what he promised, that's another matter, and we're going to look into that in a moment. <clears throat> I believe it is wise to regard the expression, all the kingdoms, literally, because what was at stake was the nature of the kingdom or dominion over planet Earth as a whole. Is it going to be the kingdom of grace, of Christ, or is it going to be the kingdom of Satan? And that's the central antithesis throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis chapter 3, from the fall of man to the end of the book of Revelation. That's the central antithesis, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of the Messiah or the kingdom of Satan. Was there to be a kingdom of grace established by Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb that would leaven the whole earth with righteousness? Or was there to be a kingdom of sin, rebellion, human autonomy, a kingdom where satanic principles reigned? Now, there is biblical precedent for the transference to a very high mountain through a vision. In Ezekiel 40, verse 2, the hand of Yahweh was upon Ezekiel, and here's what it says. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. In the revelation of John, to John on Patmos, we can see something very similar to Ezekiel's experience. Revelation 21, 10-11a says, And he carried me away to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So that we have a spiritual showing, or at least something supernatural, uh, is supported by the parallel in Luke Four or five, where we are told that this occurred in a moment of time. Now note, Jesus was not merely shown all the kingdoms of this world, but all their glory, the glorious aspect of these kingdoms. There was a certain worldly glory that these mighty kingdoms possessed. There was amazing architecture, Magnificent and beautiful works of art, great projects of infrastructure and agriculture, 
as well as all sorts of clever inventions, feats of engineering and technology. <coughs> there was the pyramids, the great aqueducts, the gardens of Babylon, the many huge palaces, impressive libraries, etc. And we read about the, the wonders of the ancient world and things that were amazing and wonderful. There's a sense here in which the devil is bragging and taking credit for the achievements of fallen man. <clears throat> Look at how beautiful, attractive, and impressive are these kingdoms that my followers, all those who live by human autonomy and serve their own lusts or sinful desires, have achieved. Look at them. Look at the, the use of concrete in Rome and the amazing aqueducts and the amazing domes and structures and architecture. Look at what the Greeks have achieved with their amazing art and philosophy. There's no subtlety here. This is a direct appeal to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 Look, Jesus, at these beautiful courts, the beautiful robes, and the crowns, the retinue of servants, the mind-boggling wealth, the stately palaces, the worship of the masses, the exaltation and glory that you will receive like these kingdoms of the world. You'll be over all these kingdoms. <clears throat> There's no need to go down that path of suffering and humiliation. You can have it all right now. Right now. Just bow the knee to me. And then let's look at the temptation itself. Verse 9. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. <clears throat> now the devil's temptation contains a promise based on Jesus fulfilling a condition. So, you know, really Satan is aping God here. You know, Jesus had the covenant of redemption. He had to... Uh, do certain things to get the promises. Well, Satan's imitating that. The promises all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the glory that comes with ruling over them. Satan offers Christ an imperial kingship over every nation and people on planet Earth. He is promising Jesus that he's going to make him king over all kings, lord over all lords, supreme ruler of planet Earth. So our Lord would supposedly have a worldwide satanic empire. According to Satan, <coughs> he would possess more power, glory, wealth, exaltation, and territory than any human being in history. The devil is offering our Lord something that all narcissistic, megalomaniacal leaders, Nimrod, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, something they all desire, they all lusted after, they all wanted, and it's being offered to Christ for one simple act. But men have lusted after throughout history, a one-world military, political, religious empire. Now, the devil's proposal is a satanic imitation, an evil demonic counterplan that is all the kingdoms of the world, of course, um, by siding with Satan, 
to what Yahweh has promised the Son. The Bible teaches that if Jesus fulfills the covenant of redemption, the agreement between the triune God made in eternity, the Son has to come, assume a human nature, suffer and die on the cross, be rejected by his people, etc., and rise from the dead. The, Holy, uh, the Father sends the Son, and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to the people in history. It's a covenant of redemption. <clears throat> if Jesus fulfills the covenant of redemption by being the suffering servant who perfectly fulfills the Father's will, and he dies in the cross, that he will be given all power and authority over everything in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18-20. That's the promise. <clears throat> the great difference between these promises is that the devil offers instant gratification in power now by simply giving a full allegiance to Satan. Remember what he did in the garden. Adam and Eve had a test. You can have all the trees, all the fruit of all these beautiful trees. Just You can't have this one tree. Just stay away from this one tree. Obey me. And in due time, after this test is fulfilled, you'll receive eternal glorified life and, and you'll lose the ability to commit sin and you'll have paradise forever. They couldn't do that. They didn't do it. Well, they could have done it, but they didn't do it. The triune God's plan and eternal agreement is that the cross must precede the crown. There must be great suffering, humiliation, rejection, torture, and a horrifying bloody death before Jesus is glorified by the Father. Satan says, you don't have to go through that. Just bow the knee to me. Do, do your own thing. And Satan knows the promises of the Messiah's, Messiah's power and glory. We saw that Satan knows scripture. He can quote scripture very effectively when he wants to. He knows scripture. Here's just a few passages. Here's Psalm 2, 6 to 8. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we know from other sections of scripture that it's a reference to the resurrection. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Psalm 72, 8-11. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will present gifts. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yea, yes, all kings will fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Psalm 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7, 13-14 I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming up with the clouds of heaven. Where is he coming? Up to the throne room of God. It's the ascension of Christ. It's not a descent. It's an ace ascent. Coming up to the clouds of heaven. He came up to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, kingdoms, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And then just one more. I could quote these several pages, but here's just one more. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey, 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Bible is very clear upon that. So Satan knows these promises, but he offers a completely different way of receiving honor and glory and power. The satanic way. And it's instant gratification. You can have it right now. There's no need to go through all this suffering and rejection and humiliation. Why do that? Bow the knee to me. Once again, the devil attempts to shift Jesus away from the will of the Father by presenting him with a plan for dominion that is the opposite of God's plan. The devil's plan is idolatry and human autonomy from Yahweh. God's plan is humble submission, fulfilling the Father's will to perfection, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, and the kingdom spreading by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel through history as leaven leavens a lump. This temptation is Satan's masterpiece that he has consistently used on men throughout history. Now, it's a masterpiece on un unregenerate men. It, doesn't, it bounces off Christ like a BB on a granite wall. It doesn't affect Christ at all. The devil has been very successful with this offer because of man's innate moral and spiritual depravity. <clears throat> the condition, which is to bow down to Satan and worship him, is in principle much broader than, we, than a simple act of worship. It is a complete shift of allegiance away from Yahweh, the true and living God, to Satan. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to worship? Is it going to be God, the true God, or is it going to be the devil? The devil is to be the source of religion, law, politics, philosophy. The devil wants an intolerance and hatred of Yahweh and everything that God wills and decrees. The devil is dedicated to a systematic, comprehensive rebellion against God. Power, when divorced from God's authority, an inspired word becomes a demonic authority. You say, well, how in the world could Joe Biden and this administration do things that are so completely insane, foolish, and evil? Well, now we know. They're followers of Satan. They're Satan's covenant children. They do the works of their father, Satan. They are obeying Satan. And their plan is the destruction of America. They won't put it that way, but that's what they want to do. A godly kingdom rests upon belief and an allegiance to the triune God, the true God, through Christ, which is expressed in our walk by obedience to the word of God in all areas of life. Submission! A biblical order requires that power and authority be ministerial and godly in its foundation, nature, and application. The question in the family, what does God say? What does the Bible say? The question for private piety, what does the Bible say? The question for politics should be, what does the Bible say? The Bible is the answer to everything because it is God's word. Christ is the governor of the world. 
by means of his sacrificial death, atonement for sin and guilt, justification in God's heavenly court, and the application of the word of God to society, personal, familial, and societal sanctification by his spirit, which is poured forth from heaven by the exalted Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of that, the fountain, the efficacy, is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's why he couldn't ascend and pour out the Spirit and be exalted until his work of redemption was completed, because that is the foundation of dominion, personal, family, society. Satan wants the right to command and enforce obedience apart from a right relationship to Yahweh and the only lawful source of power and authority. God's revealed well the word of God. The only way that man can truly increase his lawful authority is to increase his faithfulness to the law word of God. The more faithful a man is to the word of God, the more that he should be obeyed. This can only be done through Jesus Christ who through a sacrificial death established the way to have a relationship to God. It is salvation through Christ and societal sanctification by discipleship and the application of God's moral law to society and culture that the nations desperately need. And it's the only way. So you have an alternative. It's Satanism or it's the biblical religion following Jesus Christ and the word of God. Those are the alternatives. And we see what Satanism leads to. We see uh, people being murdered over in Ukraine right now by an evil satanic dictator. And he pretends he's all friendly to the Eastern Orthodox Church and he's religious and he's all, I'm cultural and I'm conservative and I love the family and he's against homosexuality, which is wonderful. I agree with that. But he's a satanic piece of excrement. Because there's only two alternatives and he's not obeying Christ. It's not a just war, that's obvious. Satan wants Jesus to reject God's covenant and instead become covenantally united, connected with him. The Christian is brought into a relationship with God by Christ's redemption. Based on the efficacy of the Savior's death and resurrection, men are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, effectually called, justified, sanctified, and adopted into God's own family. They are covenanted with God through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. We're going to celebrate the Holy the Holy Supper today. And I want you to think about that. It's Christ's covenant, established by Christ's blood, his suffering, his death. Men are in covenant with Satan because they are depraved and actively participate in the devil's original rebellion. People are willingly conquered by sin and temptation because they love sin and they love human autonomy. Those who live in darkness are willingly seduced. You can't blame it on the devil. He can tempt. He can't force. They are full participants in the kingdom of darkness. Human autonomy has many expressions. But all non-Christian worldviews, religions, and philosophies are founded upon Satanism. In the Dome of the Rock in Israel, on the Temple Mount, inside the Dome of the Rock, it has a statement affirming Unitarianism, and it says, God does not have a son. I'm paraphrasing. 
explicitly denies the biblical religion, explicitly denies the word of God, explicitly denies the Bible. Islam is satanic. Buddhism is satanic. Tibetan Buddhism, Shintoism, they're all satanic. They're simply different expressions of human autonomy dressed up with religion, so people feel all religious and wonderful, but they all reject Christ, as defined by Scripture. This satanic connection to man's commitment to autonomy and sin is perhaps best noted in the John 8 pericope, where the Jews make the claim that they are in covenant with God because they are Abraham's seed. Verse 33. That is, they are descended from the great patriarch. Because Jesus didn't think they were being true Jews. And they're all, hey, we're Abraham's children. And they accused Jesus being born of fornication, accusing his... Uh, denying the virgin birth and saying Christ came about due to Mary fornicating, which, of course, is blasphemous. Our Lord does not deny the physical connection, but he notes a few things about the Jews who were his opponents. Number one, they do not believe in the word of God or Jesus' testimony regarding the truth. Verses 37 to 38, 43, 45, and 47. Number two, they do not do the works of Abraham. Verse 39, that is, they do not possess the obedience that is a fruit of true faith. Number three, they do not love Christ or God the Father. Verse 42, what then does our Lord say about these unbelieving Jews? Number one, they hate Christ and seek to kill him. Number two, they do the deeds or works of Satan. Verse 41, Number three, they hate the truth and they teach lies. Verses 44 to 45, and number four, their covenantal father is not God, but Satan. And those are the Jews. Very religious people. These are not axe murderers. These are not serial killers. These are the religious Jews in Christ's day. They are covenantally the children of Satan because they reject the word of God and they reject Jesus Christ. The children of the devil owe their existence to the true God who created all things. But their covenant God is Satan because they have a commitment to sin and they possess the guilt that attends it. In addition, they hold fast to the lies and worldviews of the devil. Satan wants Jesus to be like all unconverted fallen men who are living in darkness. He wants our Lord to abandon Yahweh, the word of God, the truth, his mission. And the only way to reverse what happened at the fall, the establishment of, of a kingdom of grace and godly dominion. So you see what's at stake here. This is radical. The devil wants Jesus to forsake everything associated with God for the supposed glory of being in charge of this evil world system. He is asking Christ to become the chief antichrist. That's what he's doing. Now, this temptation raises the question. I brought it up earlier. Does the devil really believe uh, that he holds <coughs> this great of an authority over the world? Or is he simply lying or exaggerating in order to tempt Jesus to sin? That Satan does have power over the fallen world order is clearly taught in Scripture. Three times in the Gospel of John, Christ calls the devil the ruler of this world. 1231, 1430, 1611. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 
the prince or ruler of this world, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, and 8, and the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2, and C also, very similar, uh, Ephesians 6, 11 to 12. In Revelation, he is described as the one who deceives the whole world, 12, 9. Now, when we read of Satan's power over this world, we must keep in mind that this does not mean that he controls the physical universe or the earth, but only the realm of evil and mankind alienated from the life of God. That's his power. He doesn't have an intrinsic power over creation or anything like that. that that's God. He has a power over evil men, fallen men. The devil holds sway over fallen mankind, that is, unsaved men in their guilt and slavery to sin. Such men are deceived and held under satanic bondage. Only those who repent and believe in Christ have come to their senses and escaped the snare of the devil. And this is from 2 Timothy 2.26, having been take, taken captive to do his will. Christians, Paul says, have escaped the snare of the devil. The evil one is the ruler of, of the world, the evil world system of fallen men, because he holds men in epistemological, moral, and intellectual trap. Men are blind to the truth and thus think and live in darkness. They are taken in by the allurement of error, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the sinful flesh, the pride of life, and the worldview that supports such foolish, evil vanities. That's his control. Paul says that those who worship idols in reality are worshiping demons. And I forgot to write the passage down. I believe it's in Corinthians. He's referring to a passage in Deuteronomy. Idol worship, God says, is demon worship. Only Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death and resurrection can set us free from the devil. For the Redeemer eliminates the guilt of sin and frees us from the power of sin over us. He justifies us and then he sanctifies us by his spirit. Jesus said, John 8, 32, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then here's a wonderful passage, Hebrews 2, 15, 14 to 15. Inasmuch then as the children are partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The redemptive work of Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, caused him to fall from heaven, Luke 10.18, and with respect to his former influence over the nations, chained him so that the gospel and the kingdom of grace can spread and live on the whole earth, Matthew 13.33. One I forgot to mention, of course, Revelation chapter 20. The chaining of Satan occurred at the cross in the resurrection. That reference to Revelation 20 is not what happens at the end of the world. It's what happens so that the kingdom can spread throughout the world. In addition, Satan can do nothing without God's permission. He is a chained, finite, but powerful beast. Compared to the power of Christ who is divine, he is less than a speck of dust. So with all this in mind, the devil's offer is really a sham. It's a sham. He was offering Jesus great, great glory, power, and status in a kingdom that would soon be defeated and overthrown by the cross. 
it is akin to offering someone a first-class ticket on the Titanic. Christ knew the prophecies about his kingdom. He knew that the devil's kingdom would soon be crushed at Golgotha. So note that the glory of the world and its lusts are soon passing away, 1 John 2.17. It is a vain, fleeting, temporary glory. The Christian is focused on eternal concerns, matters, and rewards, not something temporary, not some temporary exaltation. He knows that his citizenship is in heaven, Colossians 3.20. And those who are heavenly-minded focus on treasures on, in heaven, not on the earth, Matthew 6.19 to 21 and, 20, and 33. <clears throat> so who wants to be, do uh, you want to be popular and, and worshipped? for a little period of time and then spend eternity in hell? Is that what you want? You want to be uh, Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix? You want to be Adolf Hitler or Stalin? It's foolishness. The glory of the world is a very fleeting, temporary glory. A great way to reject temptations is to view reality from an eternal perspective. In addition, a holy person does not seek the approval and glory of evil, blind worldlings. Who cares what they think? You know, if you're an influencer on YouTube or something and you want to make a bunch of money, uh, you, you know, you have to act worldly and be a fool. Well, we don't, we're not interested in that. We don't care. It is when professing Christians seek the approval of the world that they have made all sorts of compromises with the world. And that's one of the problems the church has. Compromising with feminism. Compromising with pro-sodomite rights. Nothing but evil. Compromising with this. Compromising with that. Hating the law of God. Putting down the law of God. These are all compromises with the world. These are all attempts to have worldly glory. Something we shouldn't seek. Something we shouldn't care about at all. Those who desire to spend, to speak consistently with a Christian world and life view and who thus practice a godly lifestyle, we are promised, will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 and see Mark 10.30. Well, that's the temptation. Very simple temptation, but like I said, it, it has very uh, cosmic overtones. Well, let's look at Christ's answer here. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! Or be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. Verse 10. This temptation was so evil, vile, and hideous that it merits an instant rebuke on the part of Christ. Get out of my sight! The Savior's imperative, be gone, Satan, not only reveals Christ's hatred and abhorrence at such a proposal, but also reveals his absolute supremacy over the devil even in a state of humiliation. Satan obeyed him and departed because he had to obey him, the son of the living God. Throughout his ministry, the demons cowered in fear of Jesus. Have you come to judge us before the time? They knew their kingdom was at an end. They knew Christ was going to take over. They knew that Christ was going to crush them and cast them in the lake of fire. And they were afraid of him. 
They knew that their time of dominion, rebellion, and rule over the unregenerate masses of mankind would come to an end, an end in horrifying judgment. And if the demons knew it, Satan knew it. But being satanic, being committed to autonomy, he doesn't change his plans. He keeps moving in this evil direction, because that's his nature. Christ gives the devil a reason for the rebuke from a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 6.13. Our Lord substitutes the word worship for the word fear because the devil is requesting worship. The word worship is more specific, but is implied in the word fear. He also adds the word only in the second part of the verse to emphasize the exclusivity of the first and second commandments and the true religion. Jesus terminates the temptation with strong force and backs it up with a teaching of scripture. The devil has been soundly, emphatically defeated, rebuked, sent packing. Our Lord understood what was at stake with this temptation. Idolatry or farts God is the foundation and fountain of all other sins and rebellion against God. That's why they're the first and second commandments. They're the primary commandments. All sin is based on idolatry to some degree. If the heart or mind has an idol or a false religion or worldview or philosophy, then the whole life will be corrupt, perverse, idolatrous, and antichrist. Those fools that are terrorists, Islamic terrorists, blowing themselves up and murdering innocent people, they're simply acting on their world and life view, because that's the Quran and the teachings of Islam. The founder of Islam was a rapist and a murderer. He was a super savage, evil beast. He was satanic to the core. Satan saved his most bold and evil temptation until last. But Jesus defeated him with an emphatic rebuke and a parting stroke with the sword of the Spirit. Jesus following scripture demands that all worship and service must be directed to Yahweh, the covenant God, for there is only one true God, the Lord Almighty. And this God is worthy of all praise, honor, worship, and service. And given the analogy of scripture, we could add, that this holy, righteous, loving, and compassionate, infinite, personal God can only be approached, worshipped, and, and served through Jesus Christ in his sacrificial blood. And we know that's true. So the controversy when, uh, I think it was Jerry Falwell, said that God only listens to the prayers of Christians who pray in the name of Jesus. And he, the flack he received from the media and from uh, religious moderates and liberals was shocking. And I don't think he backed down. I hope he didn't. It's true. There's only one way to God. Christ. He's the door. There's only one way to God. Christ. And his sacrificial blood. Our Lord's teaching is completely the opposite of what most modern Americans are taught and think in our own day about religion in a number of ways. First, the common idea, and I was taught this I. I did attend a public school for a while, then I went to Roman Catholic schools. Uh, and I was taught this in Roman Catholic schools as well, by the way. <clears throat> the common idea that all religions lead to God and are perfectly acceptable to Him, 
that is religious pluralism or polytheism, is emphatically rejected by Jesus Christ as satanic. There is only one true and living God, Yahweh, and only he is to be worshipped and served. That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, says. Any other religion besides Bible-believing, Orthodox, Protestant Christianity is satanic at its very core and must be emphatically rejected. We are commanded to dismiss it as Christ dismissed the devil. So don't fall into this. You know, I understand. I have my, my relatives are not Christians. They're a bunch of Roman, you know, apostate Roman Catholics and atheists. Uh, I understand. God is just. God's judgment will be just. But we have to believe what the Bible says. Christ is it. He's the only way. Second, Jesus clearly accepted the inspiration, infallibility, and full authority of the Old Testament scriptures. They were his standard, his sole standard for faith and life. All the passages quoted against the devil are from the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book grievously denied and perverted by the so-called liberals, modernists, or higher critics. Our Lord put a special honor on God's law, or the Torah, which he knew would be emphatically, especially attacked by the enemies of Christianity. If you go to a seminary today, even neo-evangelical seminaries like Fuller Seminary, they teach that these books are a sham. They're thrown together by power-hungry priests. No, they're the very word of God, and Christ taught explicitly that the, ver that the very word of God. Once it is denied, then what men will produce will be humanistic and idolatrous. And look at modernistic Christianity. Look at liberal Christianity. Homosexual pastors, lesbian pastors, homosexual marriage, adult, uh, adultery for any cause, a divorce for any cause, and adultery is accepted, fornication is accepted. It's an antinomian, blasphemous, satanic religion to the very core. And uh, the unbelieving truck driver who goes bowling on the Sabbath or goes to the beach is less in sin than going to worship in these churches where Christ is blasphemed by their satanic theories. And then third, Christ does not point us to psychological therapy or concepts of self-esteem in a crisis. He depends solely on scripture. When we are in a time of testing, and believe me, you will be sooner or later, or enter into temptation, we must base our thinking and our answers directly on Scripture. Van Til does this in the field of apologetics. Jay Adams does it in the field of counseling, which before Jay Adams was a bunch of psychological garbage. And still to this day, it's mostly psychological garbage among evangelicals. <clears throat> I know that in large evangelical churches, people that are poor are sent to go apply for welfare to the state. People who have problems are told to go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They're the priesthood of secular humanism, and they're unbelievers. For every, un for every unbiblical thought or enticement, we must have a biblical response ready so we can put it to use immediately. 
your sword must be sharp, and it must be in your right hand, ready to use, if you're left-handed. So you go on the attack against Satan and sin, and do not stumble. Like Jesus, of course, we must detest and abhor sin, and then slay it with the sword of the Spirit. There must be a premeditation on, on God's word, so that we can resist Satan and stop temptation before it gives birth to sin. These things are simple. The Word of God is very simple. So let's obey it. Let's put it in our heart and obey it. If you're having a problem with your children, you're having a problem in your marriage, or you're having a problem with lust or some kind of problem, the answer is right there in front of you. It's in the Bible. Learn it. Quote it. Meditate on it. Obey it. And then we come to the conclusion here of the comforting angels. Verse 11, And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. As soon as Satan departed, the father sent angels to minister to his beloved son. <coughs> this temptation or test was complete. The second Adam was victorious, unlike the first Adam who failed. Now, Jesus had fasted 40 days. He had been tempted. He was physically weak. He was exhausted. He had endured the full assaults of the devil. It was now fitting that they fulfill their role as ministering spirits and come to him. Of course, at the Father's bidding, while he was tempted, they weren't allowed to interfere. But now the temptation's over. They're going to go comfort Jesus. In Hebrews 1.14, we are told they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister. And the Greek is diakonia, the same word used here, for those who will inherit salvation. And we'll end with Matthew Henry. They came in a visible appearance, as the devil had done in the temptation. While the devil was making the assaults upon our Savior, the angels stood at a distance, and their immediate attendance and ministrations were suspended, that it might appear that he vanquished Satan in his own strength, and that his victory might be the more illustrious, and that afterward, when Michael makes use of his angels in fighting with the dragon and his angels, it might appear that it is not because he needs them, or he could not do his work without them, but because he is pleased to honor them so far as to employ them. One angel might have served to bring him food, but here there are many attending him to testify their respect to him and their readiness to receive his commands. So, uh, Psalm 91 is, is uh, true after all, isn't it? They couldn't help him during the temptation because he had to endure it alone. He had to win the battle alone as the second Adam, and he did. But once that's over, he, and if you, I, I kind of ran out of time. If I had more time, we could look at angels. We see angels nearby it worked throughout the ministry of Christ. They can't help him in his fight, but they can minister to him when the fight is won, and they do so. They're at the resurrection, they're at the birth. They're, we find them throughout the scriptures. And they're, they love to minister to Christ, of course, who is God, and of course they love to minister to his children. So I want you to think about what we've learned today. Think about it as we go to the Supper, the Holy Supper. It's amazing, these temptations. And Christ fully was victorious. And he taught us how to be victorious over temptations and use the word of God for full effect against the wiles of the devil and against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Use them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you so much for Jesus. He's, he's not only died on the cross for us and gotten rid of our sin and guilt and given us his perfect righteousness as a gift, 
so that we're justified in your sight, Lord, but he's also shown us the way to live. Fill us with our, your Holy Spirit. Bend our hearts. Guide us. Cause us to imitate your dear Son in his perfect obedience to you. Cause us to put you first, to only serve you. Cause us to only worship you as you have taught us to worship you, not adding to it, not detracting from it. Cause us to be faithful and protect us by your mighty angels. In Jesus' name, amen.